Welcome to the 34 Circe Salon. We journey from the ancient world to the cosmos. Take the adventure. Take the adventure with us. With us. With us. With us. And welcome, everyone, to the 34 Circe Salon. This is the Parallax Channel. We explore everything from the ancient world to the cosmos. As always, if you would be so kind as to give us a lovely high rating on your podcast platform or leave very nice comments, it would make us all very happy. My name is Sean Marlon Newcomb, and today it is the ancient world, the classical world, at the movies. We are going to be talking... Actually, one of my all-time favorite plays, Julius Caesar, and the film adaptation therein with one of my all-time favorite actors, Marlon Brando, the 1953 version of Julius Caesar. And who better to talk about this with us than the one, the only, Dr. Gary Stickle. Welcome, Gary. Hi, good to see you again. The throng at the Roman Forum... Shouts with joy. Now, Gary, I know you share with me the belief that there is no greater classical world civilization or culture than Rome, right? Rome is the greatest. <laughs> okay. Anyway. No, it's Greece, and you know it. Gary, Gary loves Greece. I love Rome, but we're going to talk Rome today. So um, Julius Caesar uh, is a play that so many of us are familiar with. We all have heard different lines. We know the famous phrase, et tu, Brute. The idea of that Brutus uh, was, was the close, beloved friend of Julius Caesar and one of the conspirators who killed Caesar. Of course, it was because of that phrase that we think of it as someone who betrays you, a good friend who stabs you in the back, literally, from this image of Caesar being stabbed. But part of the setup of this play is that the reason Brutus went for Caesar and killed him with other conspirators is he felt that Caesar was going to become a dictator. And Rome at that point was a republic. So the setting of our play is a period in ancient Rome where they're about to transition from the Roman Republic to the Roman dictatorship, the empire. And this is that pivotal moment there. So, Gary, why don't you uh, fill in a little more about this time period, this this period in time in world history? Well, uh, Shakespeare play Julius Caesar is uh, my favorite, uh, arguably my favorite among the uh, tragedies. Uh, you know, uh, Shakespeare divided his plays and. Uh, Tragedies, comedies, and histories, and uh, and the version I have, uh, I have a volume for each uh, set of plays. Um, it's listed as a, a a tragedy, but my assistant, Professor Michael Grant, says, "Oh, oh no, it was a history." And actually, uh, it was listed as a history by Shakespeare. And actually, we're both right, if you can imagine. Because I looked it up, and in the first portfolio, the, the first publication of the play by uh, Shakespeare, uh, he listed it as a tragedy, but later on he had the quarto edition published, mm -hmm. and in that he listed it as a history. So whatever. 
but uh, it's a great well, play. Well, a lot of that, uh, particularly with Shakespeare's plays and his works, I mean, Shakespeare, we we now receive him as the, the great master of the English language and to, to me, the, the great genius of the English language. But to, in that period in time, Shakespeare is simply a popular playwright. He's someone you go to the, it's Steven Spielberg. It's anyone yeah. that you think of today that people enjoy their work, their plays. So yeah. in the gathering of, of his works and his editions, you get a lot of different versions and, and they weren't always formally done. There were sometimes people putting them together in certain ways or passing them along privately. So you're going to get different, um, different, uh, groupings as well. But he, um, you know, he based it on the, the classical accounts. And, uh, and the thing is, uh, you know, prominent in the play is Cassius, who is trying to get uh, Brutus to uh, join in the uh, assassin's plot to assassinate Caesar because they're afraid he's going to become a, he wants to become a dictator, the first dictator of Rome. And one of, one of the classical sources being Plutarch, a, prom, a prominent classical source, uh, Plutarch's Lives, yes. uh, which which uh, Shakespeare, you'll, you'll see throughout the play, uses very liberally, adapts very liberally from it. So we have this setup now, right? We're at the end. What, what we now know is the end of the Republic, and that era just simply was this, they're at a period in time of strife where you have this incredibly popular commander, this great leader, Julius Caesar. He's had victories in Gaul. Um, he's shown himself to be a great commander and leader of men, and now he has come to Rome. He returns to Rome, and the fear is he is going to be made dictator over, uh, over the people of Rome. Rome was, the Romans took great pride in the fact that they were republic. They did not have kings. They're, the whole history of throwing off the Etruscan kings and, yes. and establishing their own uh, republic of uh, representative government. So this was something important. And Brutus was from a long lineage of these sorts of men of letter, uh, statesmen of Rome yes. who stood for the Republic. So Brutus represents that. Now you have Cassius and Brutus, as you were saying, um, when we open the play. By the way, we open the play in this version, the 1953 version, with a quote from Plutarch. So it gives a really good setting. And, well, that was uh, a, a great film, and in, in my opinion, the best film version you know, of, of Julius Caesar, uh, you know, Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. Well, and, it's, a, uh, it's directed by Joseph Mankiewicz, so that's a you, you're a good start right there, right? Yes, and it had a wonderful soundtrack by uh, Miklos Rosha, mm -hmm. who I believe did the soundtrack for the movie Ben Hur with Charlton Heston later on. Um, Mankiewicz did uh, Guys and Dolls and All About Eve. Uh, later on, the Sleuth and the Honeypot, well into the seventies. Um, Ghost of Mrs. Muir. There's a lot of he's he's a, an excellent screenwriter. He's the uh, his brother, I believe, was the one of the writers of uh, Citizen Kane. Wow. So, yeah. yeah. So, yes, they're a very prominent film family. And I and the thing is, uh, the, the cast had uh, Martin Brando as Mark Anthony, uh, John Gilgood as Cassius, and uh, James Mason as Brutus. I just have to interject two of my favorite actors, one of which, Marlon Brando, my name is Sean Marlon Newcomb. 
Sean is for Sean Connery. Marlon is for Marlon Brando. So shout out <laughs> for Marlon Brando. But I'm also a big James Mason fan, and that that stood out too. Didn't you think the the performances were astonishing? I, I, mean, I thought they were fantastic. And yeah. Uh, now I I was in high school a long time ago, and um, my uh, literature class teacher. Uh, in those days, they didn't have videos, you know, or DVDs, whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, you had to have a, a film version, which wasn't available, but he had an audio version. Mm -hmm. And when I uh, heard that Marlon Brando, you know, played Mark Anthony, because we were reading the play in, in school, and uh, and I thought, well, this is ridiculous, because I, I'd only been exposed to Marlon Brando with On the Waterfront and All About Eve and that, that sort of thing. And, uh, and you know, he had this street voice and and uh, delivery and all that sort of thing. And I thought, how can he play this sophisticated Mark Anthony? But I was dead wrong. When I heard him give his friends Romans, countrymen, lend me your ear speech, I was enthralled. He was astonishing in this role. I mean, what he shows in this role, his range, I think this is the role, honestly, which, which people are aware of just how gifted he was. Because in On the Waterfront, um, you know, all the wild ones or anything of that sort, you get this well, streetcar, of course, streetcar named Desire in particular. Oh, that's what I mean. Not all about Eve, but streetcar right. Desire. Sorry. Uh, you get this very primal actor who's very naturalistic, very absolutely real. Yeah, but, you modern. know, low-class, you, know, low, low you know, street-wise kind of a delivery. Yeah, a street-tough guy. Yeah. But then you see him able to deliver, you know, his... The, his presence, his energy, and his delivery is just extraordinary. And it's in, in really interesting contrast because Mason is astonishing too. He's so natural. The words flow right off of him at, with, with ease. And so you have Mason giving this very mellifluous approach to his part. Yeah. And then you have the contrast of James Brando, Mason who's just was great. brute force. Yeah, incredible. And the first time I got exposed to him was in uh... – Walt Disney's uh, Jules Verne classic, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, where he played Captain Nemo. I just watched that recently, yeah. Yeah, I and he, he was wonderful in that. He was a great Nemo, and uh, and he was wonderful in, in that 1953 version. He's, he's, he's an excellent. And any, for anyone to see James Mason, I would highly recommend North by Northwest, just one of his oh, yeah, classic, he, iconic performances. Yeah, he was, uh, he was great in that. But it's it's a great contrast because Brando is it gives this uh, again it's it's stylized it is it is very sophisticated but he gives a, a most whereas if Mason is is mel, this mellifluous ease that flows out Brando's comes his performance comes like a like punches almost like a like a, like a guy throwing jabs it's a very yeah. sharp very hard kind of a delivery and it's very powerful and he's always. He's he's in an intensity that is that is amazing. I mean, you know, one of the other things too is he looks Roman. I mean, it's really absolutely. Amazing. He, he definitely Look looks uh, ancient Roman. He does. He just looks like an ancient Roman. It's and more really, than any other actor that's portrayed the role and everything. And I agree more than any I've seen because typically they'll get these guys who are you know uh, talented, incredibly talented, but they're but they will often look like. You know, British gentlemen. I mean, Mason's a little different. I think Mason looks Roman too, 
but Brando looks like an, an a Roman, you know, someone from, you know, from Italy. that time, a- absolutely, yeah, from that era, yeah, he's he's amazing. And then by contrast, uh, there was a another film version in 1970, you know, that was headed up by Charlton Heston, and he played Mark Antony, and he paled by comparison with with Brando. He's he's a, and, and and Heston was a great actor. It's just he's not right for that role. That's the one thing I will say about this. I thought that the um, the, the actor who played uh, Julius Caesar. Let me see uh, who that was. Lewis Calhoun. Lewis Calhoun. Yeah. Uh, who, who gave a great performance, but Caesar. What people don't realize about Julius Caesar is Julius Caesar was a man of action. If you look at the busts of Julius Caesar, this is a guy who is just you know he's. He's it, it's the equivalent of someone who just would, would train all the time and stays in shape. He's a guy that is that is not heavy or or no, he's you know, solid. Yeah. He's fit. He's sleek. And so oftentimes we think of the people have thought of Caesar in this older, you know, kind of like bloated looking person. But no, yeah, he's I, I don't person. think Cal. So he was miscast. Was not yeah, not a yeah. good choice for Caesar. Not a good choice. And then get this, um, John Gilbert, but, but a great actor, a wonderful actor. Mm-hmm. Well, John Gilgut, who played Cassius in the 53 version, uh, was back in the Heston 1970 version, but this time he played Caesar. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Again, a little too old. He Again, was too old. He, was, he yeah. was miscast in the role, in my opinion. People just don't understand that, but Caesar, you know, really what Caesar was like, what he looked like, what he represented. But um, so we've got the, we get this version. Uh, really well acted, really well directed, really well structured. Another thing I want to say too is you point out that you had heard it, you had had an audio version when you were a student, and the thing that struck me about this struck me about this film, watching it again, was just how beautifully framed and shot it was. Yeah. So when you just had the audio, as wonderful as it is, you miss the visuals, which are they're almost Art Deco. Wouldn't you agree? There's almost something to yeah, it with the, I, with the I would. angles I thought and it was, shapes. I thought it was uh, stunning, really. Stunning looking, and there's a, a noir aspect to it in the beginning because we're, you know, the plotting and the planning of that. Yeah, and it, it, it is in black and, black and white, right, by the way. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's in black, which, which may deter some people, but I highly recommend you get past your black and white phobia. I know people who have this phobia, they won't watch films in black and white, but you miss one, you miss a lot of beauty, but two, you're going to, in this case, miss an incredible, you know, these, these beings that we thankfully through the, the gift of film have captured a performance on screen. You know, we don't know performances that we've lost that happened before that, but uh, it was just stunning, just a really stunning work. What did you think of it from a classical scholar's standpoint? Well, I'm I'm not really a classical scholar. I'm I'm delving into it with my Homeric project, but I, I Well, sure, you're Homeric, but okay, as a I mean as a scholar of the ancient world. I, I'm an archaeologist, you know. I mean I'm mm-hmm. not quote unquote a classical scholar, but I I delve into it. But uh no, I just want to say some more about the Casper nineteen seventy film was interesting, besides mm-hmm. Heston, Jason Robards played Brutus, but he was, you know, <clears throat> no James Mason. Uh, John Gilgun, we already mentioned, played Caesar, and he was too old. Richard Chamberlain was actually in that 1970 version. Who did he play? Octavius? And he played Octavius. Yeah, it makes sense. That would have to be the role. He and played. then uh, Diana Rigg, who I thought was terrific. I was a big yes. fan of hers when 
She did. Everybody loves Diana Rigg. Yeah. You know, she had that TV series back in the 60s called The Avengers. We love The Avengers. Give it a shout out. Mm-hmm. But in the 1970 version, she plays Portia, uh, Brutus's wife. Mm-hmm. But uh, but that film version just pales by comparison with the 53 version. I've seen bits of it. I it's I I've, I don't even think it was shot anywhere near as well. It just seems like it was almost shot on the fly. But I don't yeah. want to rip a version. But it's uh, but again, 53 version is a work of art, quite frankly. And then the. Uh, BBC did a version of it in the 1970s. They were trying to do, I think they were trying to do all the Shakespeare plays or something, but they did a, a large number of them. And I, I really was watching them, you know, on public television. Um, and they did a, a version in 1977. Uh, but it, again, it paled by comparison with the Brando version. It just wasn't uh, uh, near the, Near the impact. Well, you know, do, are you aware that uh, Orson Welles did a stage version of this? Yeah, I, I saw it. it. It just didn't work for me either. It was okay. Wait, wait, no, but not the stage version of, of Julius Caesar? You, you saw it? No, you couldn't have seen it. You weren't born. Oh, I thought they filmed it. No, no yeah, no, not this. I, I don't know. I shouldn't say that I know whether they filmed it. I've seen pictures of it, but the stage play, it was a stage play, not a film. Yeah, but I, I thought they filmed it. I, I'm i not sure. I don't know that for maybe, sure. Maybe I'm confusing check, them. I, I Yeah, think I think it, you might be confusing with another one. I, I, think pretty, I don't com- think they... Yeah, I think yeah. I'm confusing it with Macbeth. Yeah, you... you like, there is his version of Macbeth, which I actually think is an amazing work. Yeah, no, uh, I, but no, his, I agree. His, his stage play, his stage version of Julius Caesar was done... And this is what I think was so incredible about it, uh, reading about it, seeing the, the pictures of it, um, was done during the rise of fascism. And he played it as a fascist. They were all in fascist attire. Yeah. So, well, I think uh, from I think the 1930s, if I remember. Yeah, it was 37. 37. Yeah. So, in other words, wish, they were making allusions to uh, Hitler and the Nazis. And Mussolini, know. exactly. And uh and Franco, for that matter. So uh, I'll have to look up whether there is any kind of a film of it, but I didn't think there was. But yeah, that was a, another example of it. How the play itself lends itself. Right? The the you know the term timeless is thrown around a little much, but this is a timeless play because it does speak to the the tension in any. A government body in any culture, in any political body between people's desire for their own freedom, their own autonomy, and the ambitious lust of powerful men to control nations, control resources, to be the one in charge. I mean, I, I mean, not to veer too far off topic with, with Julius Caesar, but I always wondered about the rise of these kinds of Caesars, these kinds of Hitlers, these kinds of uh, strongmen and why and how they become accepted by a populace. Uh, and, and, you know, let's go bring it back to the movie, the great scene where Brando delivers his friend's Roman's countryman speech, where you really see him as Mark Antony manipulating the crowd. It's incredible yeah. how he does it. Well, actually that's been uh, discussed by scholars and, uh, you know, he says, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. 
But then he goes on to praise him. He does just the opposite right. of what he says. Exactly. And then he incites the, the crowd to to riot, you know, to support Caesar. It's uh, a, an astonishing the way Brando does it, too, the way he plays it, you know, uh, the way he, he goes through the, the different moments, you know, shows them the will that Caesar has and what he's, how he's willed it to his people. But, that's, but I, I shouldn't have shown it to you. I shouldn't have shown it. Of course, this is the brilliance of Shakespeare, of course, too. The, I, I shouldn't have shown it to you. I, I, I went too far. Let me put this back. And then, of course, that makes the crowd want to, you know, uh, see yeah, the he, will even more. He was a master of manipulating the crowd. And that's, that's again, the brilliance of Shakespeare. I mean, again, the I'm just going to say something on this on, on William Shakespeare, which is I am one of the people who believe that the man from Stratford-upon-Avon is the creator, is the writer of the plays. I don't think it was the Earl of Oxford or anything. No, I story. totally agree with yeah. you. I, I, Thank you very much. It's, it's, it's absolutely. I think, I think that uh, those ideas that he couldn't have written the play is a British uh, snobbery. It's a lot. A snobbery writ large, whomever it is that follows yeah. along with I it. I mean, Shakespeare absolutely. was a genius, and you can be a genius at any uh, level of society, you know? Yes, yes. No, no, I think that's a thing. But so so that speech is ex- astonishing, and the way it's filmed is incredible. And, of course, you've talked about this. We've talked about this before. The end of the speech where Brando, the crowd is whipped up into a fervor, so he's whipped the crowd up into a fervor for Julius Caesar to ride against the people who killed him uh, and to set uh, give you a little further setting for the listener. Brutus has given Antony uh, the the opportunity to speak to the crowd. Brutus is uh, truly motivated by the desire, honorable desire, certainly as created within Shakespeare's plays and and from what we, we can read in the classical sources, the desire to preserve the Republic. And so he gives Antony... Uh, the right to speak, which Cassius thinks is a bad idea, and Cassius turns out to be right because Antony uses it to rip the crowd against Brutus. Because Brutus says, "I will come out to the crowd. I will tell them why we did what we did, and they will understand it." He's speaking to their minds. Okay, in the very right. classic case, he speaks to their minds, but Antony speaks to their hearts. Yeah, uh, it's then again. So Brando ends that scene with a little smile, a little smirk. Right. Yes. As the, because he knows he's, the crowd. he's being successful, you know. Yes, yes, yes. And it, it's kind of interesting that that play and film is resonating today and what's happening in America because mm-hmm. uh, people are concerned that, uh, you know, if, we, if we're not careful, our democracy may slide into despotism. And that's a real issue. I hear about it every day on MSNBC or, you know, CNN. Uh, I agree. I think. I think it's. Uh, I mean. I think it's a threat from all sources in all parts. I mean. I'm. I'm one that it's not. I do not think it's a right or left issue. I think it's an issue of human beings latching on to this idea of the great man, uh, and it's usually a man. We're we're still a very patriarchal culture, um, but yes, and that's why I think it has this. This is a play that would work today. That's why again it has that timelessness. You're always dealing with that tension of ambitious men who wish to take charge of a nation uh, and, and, and often do, do away with any, any form of democracy or, you know, mm-hmm. Republic, uh, you know, the, the, the true Republicanism and all that sort of thing. And by the way, there's just great 
dialogue in the, in the play. You know, for example, there's an episode where, uh, you know, Brutus and Cassius are listening to the crowd, you know, mm-hmm. and um, and Shakespeare says there's a shout and a flourish, and then Brutus says, another general shout? I do believe these applauses are for some new honors that they are heaped on Caesar. And then Cassius responds with a famous line. He says, why, man, he doth bestride the narrow world like a colossus. And we petty men walk under his huge legs and peep about to find ourselves dishonorable graves. And he says, men at some time are masters of their fates. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves, that we are underlings. It's a, That's a great phrase. And I, it, the... I've always thought that phrase was interesting in the context of the play because it is an affirmation of a of free will over destiny. But in the end, it does seem as if destiny wills out. The fault was in the stars. So somehow, yeah. if you look at the play that way, so it's very interesting. There's the, yeah, but ba- uh, basically what Cassius is saying is we must take action to preserve our republic. Of course, of course. But again, it's 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 a it's just an interesting way to look at the the many layers in Shakespeare, the many different things that that play out in there. Yes. Um, and then he, you know, calling upon Brutus because he does represent that, you know, uh, what would have been in any culture, a good old family, right? You know, yeah. you and I were just talking about the Kennedys, you know. It's something like that, or Roosevelt's, or older families that have sort of political dynasties, in in a uh, in a country in a culture, we really don't have that anymore. We had the Kennedys for a while. We had the Roosevelts for a while. Yeah, but that we don't is, seem to have anything like that anymore. No, it's it's plutocracy today. You know, well, today it's I think in fact in many ways much worse because at least those families felt a, a the importance of service to their nation. Yeah, to whom much is given, much is asked. Whereas now our contemporary. Uh, you know, billionaires really are just, they, they have an allegiance to themselves and almost act as if the nation that made them, made it possible for them to be successful really didn't do it for them. It was just, they did it themselves. Yeah, uh, they, they have, they have these uh, uh, irresponsible attitudes. They don't care to give anything back to the public, which uh, former super rich uh, men did in American history. Well, like and again, the Carnegie's and so on, you know, Exactly, and, and to, to bring it back to to ancient Rome again, that's what Brutus represented, you know, in that sense. Um, so we have this this brilliant play about the the play of what happens when these men take action against the the uh, someone who's become uh, a demagogue or, or or potentially a dictator, and then how the forces align. So in reality, what happened? You you did have this battle. Uh, between these rival forces, these triumvirates, you know, you had Mark Antony and Octavius, who eventually becomes Augustus Caesar. Right. He is an adopted son of Julius Caesar, aligned against Brutus and Cassius. And in the end, it's not the Republic that wins out. In the end, it is the the, the forces of empire that went out. Yeah. And so Octavius, whom you know, you and I have talked about, I am no fan of. Um, in the end, once Octavius and Brutus 
are triumphant, then they turn on each other. This is not in the play. This is in history. Yeah. And Octavius becomes... Well, Octavius uh, takes his forces and goes after Cassius and Brutus. And, uh, and they actually meet in Greece on a battlefield at a place called Pharsala. Mm-hmm. And near there is where I excavated at the legendary birthplace of Achilles, a site called Achilleon. Mm-hmm. I did that a long time ago. That was a real honor that Greek government gave me. That's, that's amazing. Well, it's interesting to think about the Rome, uh, you know, looking at it in terms of our contemporary culture, America. You know, we have our battles not inside America. We're having them overseas. But in the case of this particular instance of Rome, this isn't a battle of a nation uh, striking out against another nation that it, that it thinks is, is endangering it. This is literally a turf war uh, between groups of men within a nation and the world becomes their battlefield. Well, there, so, there's a fear right now that we're going to have a civil war in America. So that, that's why this play is just so uh, timely, so relevant to what's happening today. Well, the analogy would be too, if we had a civil war in America, but some of the battles took place in Canada or, you know, uh, uh, somewhere in North Africa or somewhere in Asia. Yeah, that to be, be like the... Um, yeah, yeah, it would be very strange, but that's that's the world that they lived in. Right. Now, we're coming to the end of, end of our piece, and I know we've ranged far and wide for the listener, but it's because we, we love this play. It's so yes. interesting. It's so rich. We don't have a lot of time to dig into it. So... Um, Gary, give me your take on the, the the movie, the performances in the movie, and the play itself, and what you would rate the 1953 version. How many shields would you give it out of five? Uh, I give it a five. I mean, I, I love the play, and I, I love the 53 version of the film. I am with you wholeheartedly. If I could give it more than five shields, I would. I think the acting performances are astonishing. The direction was amazing. And, of course, you cannot beat the words of William Shakespeare. No. Or, for that matter, nor for that matter, the great, rich history of Rome. So, on that note, I want to thank Dr. Gary Stickle. Thank you, Gary. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. What a great topic to discuss. What a fun episode. I am Sean Marlon Newcomb. This is the 34 Circe Salon, the Parallax Channel. We have been talking about the ancient world at the movies. Julius Caesar, 1953 version. Marlon Brando, James Mason. Great stuff. Go see it whenever you can. Take care and God bless. 